The Holy Gospel according to Luke, the 13th chapter. At that very time, there were some present who told him about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. He asked them, do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way, they were worse sinners than all other Galileans? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. Or those 18 who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others living in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish just as they did. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and found none. So he said to the gardener, see here, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree, and still I find none. Cut it down. Why should it be wasting the soil? He replied, Sir, let it alone for one more year, until I dig around it and put manure on it. If it bears fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. The Gospel of the Lord. My dear brothers and sisters, I bring you grace and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So today we are um, going to do a little bit of a Bible study for the sermon. I'm going to have you turn in your pew Bibles uh, to the Gospel. Carol read for us, it's Luke chapter 13, it's on page 950. Um, as you're turning to that, two notes. One is every time I do a sermon where we're looking at the Bible, I always try to grab this copy. It's the same type of Bible as in your pews, except it, mine has uh, some writing from my now 21-year-old son, 22-year-old son, from when he was nine. It's just his name and sort of a childish scrawl, Luke. His middle name is Timothy, Luke Timothy Westermeyer. Timothy is really tiny. Um, St. Philip spelled incorrectly, the deacon, September 2007. That has nothing to do with anything, but I just find it charming that I can hold this Bible in my hand. Uh, some of you may have seen Luke on the television last night. He goes to Gonzaga, and he, is, he was playing the drums for them last night. Uh, for the, did anyone see the game? Did anyone care? No? All right. <laughs> Go Zags. Uh, anyway, that's one irrelevant point. The other is, if you said to me, Tim, would you do a sermon that's sort of a Bible study sermon, uh, you get to choose your passage, I'm pretty confident I wouldn't pick this one. Um, it probably wouldn't even be in the top 10 or 20 or 50. However, uh, that only underscores one of the strengths of the three-year cycle of readings that we and the majority of Christians actually use throughout the world. Every three years we go through this set, appointed uh, set of readings and um, it, it forces us to pay attention uh, and to consider passages that we might otherwise overlook or ignore, and um, so that's what we're going to do today. Um, this is a very simple, it's not very long. Uh, this is, again, Luke 13, verses 1 through 9 was the reading for the day, so there's one paragraph with the heading, Repent or Perish. That's a little conversation between Jesus and some followers, not his disciples, by the way, but sort of uh, large crowds are gathering around him, so some followers of his. 
Uh, and then there's the second paragraph with the heading, The Parable of the Barren Fig Tree. When I first read this earlier this week, my initial reaction, and of course I've read this before, but um, was what the heck is that parable doing there and how is it connected to the first paragraph? So one of the things I would like to try to address, at least provisionally, um, is to answer that question. So that's a part of what I'm trying to do here is to talk about why is this parable follow this conversation. But let's start at the beginning. Um, verse 1. Uh, at that very time, there were some present, again, large crowds were gathered around Jesus, who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Now, we don't really know uh, anything, as far as I know, about this event beyond that comment about it, or, or that implied comment. Um, what we do know about Pilate is that he could be very cruel. Pilate, of course, was the governor representing the Roman Empire in Judea. So we know that Pilate could be cruel. We also know he, he was kind of not a big fan of the Jewish um, temple laws and, and religious practices. The Roman posture was to tolerate those practices, but it didn't mean that Pilate had to like it. And in this one event, and I guess my assumption is that these Galileans were killed by Pilate. It, it's possible, I guess, they were just tortured and he got some blood from him that way. But in this one event, he demonstrates both his cruelty uh, and also he, he insults the sacrificial system of the temple by mingling human blood with the sacrificial animal blood. Now, we, we are not, Luke does not tell us precisely what these followers said or what question they asked, but by the way that Jesus responds, it is clear that as they are lifting up this topic of conversation with Jesus, they are either implying or suggesting or asking the question, Jesus, you know, this thing just happened and it's kind of terrible. These Galileans, let's assume they were killed and Pilate did this awful thing. And it's, they seem to suggest that they are saying to Jesus, do you think they did something to deserve that? Right? Um, and Jesus very clearly in his response, verse 2, uh, asks them, and this is how we know that that's suggested in, in their prompt to him, do you think, you, you followers, do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way, they were worse sinners than all other Galileans? Right? So in other words, he is, he is pushing back, and, and the, next, the first word of, of verse 3 is no. He's pushing back strongly against that impulse of these followers uh, to suggest that uh, these people did something wrong. Now, 2,000 years of distance has a way of making us, I think, feel superior often to people in the Bible. And I just want to pause and, and, and be a little bit charitable with these interlocutors of, of Jesus because what they're doing is a very, it's a very human response to the problem of evil. The question of why is there evil in the world, why do people suffer, it's one of the most profound questions that we, have, we can ask as human beings. And one, and as human beings, we are interested in having answers to things. We want to understand things. We want to uh, reconcile tensions. And one way to reconcile the tension of evil and suffering in the world is to say, oh, well, this bad thing happened. The people who suffered must have done something to deserve it. Now, I want to be very clear. That is not the Christian position. It's not. 
I'm just saying it's a, it's a typical human response as a way to um, answer uh, what is ultimately a mystery, to, to, to create a black and white answer, oh, there's suffering, there's, there's evil, the people who suffered must have done something to deserve it. And it's not like this is only a problem from 2,000 years ago. Many of you, I assume, are familiar with the book um, by Rabbi Harold Kushner, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. Does anyone know this book? This is a classic that addresses, again, that same question. Uh, there's another book I would commend to you um, in the same vein. It's almost sort of a response to Kushner by a gentleman who loves Rabbi Kushner. He respects him, but he comes at it from a slightly different perspective. His name is Peter Kreeft, K-R-E-E-F-T, and this book is called Making Sense Out of Suffering. Again, both of these books and many more get at this question of why is there suffering in the world? Why is there evil? And neither of them uh, answer it the way these followers of Jesus do. They, don't, they, they would agree with Jesus that no, it's more complicated, it's more mysterious. Okay, you with me so far? Jesus reinforces that same point in another story now that he lifts up. The first story is the story of the Galileans whose blood is mixed uh, in the temple. Um, verse 4, Jesus again reinforces this point by saying, or... Do, those 18 who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them. We don't know anything about this beyond what is said here, uh, but clearly there were some 18 people, innocent people, who died. And Jesus is just saying, do you think they died because they did something wrong? Do you think they were worse offenders than all the others living in Jerusalem? And again, he says, no. Again, that's not the right way to think about this problem of evil and suffering. It is a mystery, and when you try to go to an easy answer by saying they probably deserved it, you're, you're going down the wrong path. All of that, it seems to me, is very clear in those two sort of short stories. Where it gets a little complicated is that Jesus, you may have noticed, says more than just simply no. In both cases, he says almost exactly the same thing. He says no, everything I just mentioned, it's not because they did something wrong. But then he goes on and says, I tell you, but unless you, my followers, repent, you will all perish as they did. That's verse 3. Verse 5, almost identical. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish just as they did. So you see the complication here? On the one hand, Jesus is saying um, it wasn't their fault, the Galileans or the people who died when the tower fell on them. They did nothing wrong. They didn't deserve to die. But it's not their responsibility. But then out of the other side of his mouth, he says, but unless you repent, unless you change your ways, you also will die. Those don't seem to connect, do they? You with me? Feel free to nod your heads. Um, so here's the only way I can make sense out of that. The only way I can make sense out of it is that Jesus is saying, you will be dying spiritually uh, if that's how you think. If, you, if your posture in the world is that those people suffered, it's their fault, they must have done something wrong, you are putting yourself over them, you're standing in judgment of them, you are no longer in solidarity with them, you're saying, they're worse than you are, I'm better than they are, and that is a form of spiritual death. And so Jesus is saying, that is what you need to repent of, that type of thinking, that way of approaching the world. Does that make sense? 
And that actually, I think, is the very natural bridge then to the parable. Now, I'm going to say a couple words about the parable before I do. When we talk about parables here, I always like to remind you, parables are not equations. They're not a bunch of words you put into a calculator and hit the equal button or, or, and say, this is what the parable means. And I would submit to you, whenever you hear someone like me talking to people like you, saying, here's what the parable means, you have every right to be somewhat suspicious. Because parables don't work that way. Parables are more evocative, they're more provocative. Um, again, there's not an answer to what a parable means, okay? Now, having said that, I, I do think when you read this parable in this specific context, it extends and expands on that message that Jesus has just been saying to his listeners. Don't judge other people. Don't assume they're worse than you. Don't assume you're better than them. In fact, don't worry about them at all. And the very simple parable is this parable of the fig tree. There's a fig tree, Jesus says, it's not bearing fruit, it is not doing its job, it is not fulfilling the destiny God has for it. And the owner, with absolute legitimacy, comes back to his vineyard and says, cut it down. It's consuming valuable resources, it's taking up space, and it is not giving anything back. Put something in its place that's going to be fruitful. At which point the gardener pushes back, and in this parable I think clearly the gardener is God, and says, give it time. Let's be patient with it. Let's feed it. Now in the context again of, of this circumstance that Jesus is in, I think what Jesus is trying to communicate in a different way to his listeners, which includes us, is again, quit worrying about whether other people are good. Quit worrying about whether other people are faithful. Quit worrying about whether other people are fruitful and instead ask this question. Am I being faithful? Am I becoming the person God made me to be as fully as I can? Am I being fruitful in the world? And I don't know about you, but if I'm honest about that question, and I ask myself, not other people, but ask myself that question, the very clear answer comes back, no. I am not being as faithful or as fruitful as I should be. And the good news at that point is that then God, the gardener, says to me, to maybe to all of us, great. Thank you for being honest. Now that we've established that, now that we've established that you are not being as faithful or as fruitful as you could be, here's the good news. I'm giving you more time. And more than that, equally good news, I am going to encourage and support you. I'm going to nourish you. I'm going to feed you so that you can become the kind of fruitful, faithful person I made you to be. I would not have chosen this passage. But I'll tell you what, Lent is a wonderful time for each of us to reflect on that question. And I, for one, feel like I needed to hear that today. Will you join me? 
in a word of prayer. Good and holy God, you invite us to be fruitful in the world. You ask us to be faithful. You have made us with a purpose and a mission. We pray today that you will help us to be honest about the ways we are not faithful and fruitful and that we will accept your assistance as your, and your help as you work to make us so, so that we can go back out into the world and share your love with those in need. And all this we pray in the holy name of Jesus. Amen.